my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at the hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is episode 14, titled Milton Friedman and Government Meddling. Quote, When government, in the pursuit of good intentions tries to rearrange the economy, legislate morality, or help special interests, the cost comes in inefficiency, lack of motivation, and a loss of freedom. Government should be a referee, not an active player. End quote. The late, great Milton Friedman. So, why is government the problem? And how is government the problem? And then what is the solution? For as long as I could remember, I thought that the government always had our best interests. Debatable, I know. But let's give the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they did have our best interests at heart. I always thought they for sure were the most competent and qualified individuals suited for the job of operating our society in a functional matter. You know, as I stated plenty of times prior, before 2020, I didn't really think too much about the government. Federal level, state level, local level, I honestly didn't even know what the hell it meant. I was ignorant and kind of proud of it. I think I've bragged about it. I don't give a shit about politics. I do me. As I said before, Republicrat, Democrat, the government was all one party system to me. But after my dad passed away, uh, a value that I hold really close is that I understand that nobody's really going to help me get to where I need to be. And let me be a little bit more specific. I mean that I can't rely on anyone else to do the work for me to get to my subjective destination in life, whatever that may be. And it's... Not that I won't necessarily stumble upon someone or make connections that can help me in that direction towards my destination, you know. I genuinely do believe we all stand on the shoulders of giants, but, but in my opinion, it's imperative to figure your own shit out, as stated before. So you're not a burden, right? And... Just not relying upon anyone else to hold your hand step by step. This doesn't help either party. And I'll tell you what, this is especially true when it comes to the government. And through my unveiling, I have stumbled upon plenty of some of the smartest and most influential thinkers of our time, such as Mr. Friedman, 
which we are going to discuss today. And they are all in agreement that not only is government not the solution to our problems, but they actually exacerbate our problems. And to this day, I see these same beliefs holding strong and more prominent than ever. And, you know, we all know about lobbyists and those hidden or in-your-face special interests. Hopefully we understand that government actions provide benefits to these select few. But in exchange, it imposes a smaller but significant cost to the many, sometimes larger, depending on which sector or topic we get into. But overall, the phenomenon of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs is a valid explanation for many government programs. But it doesn't go far enough, Milton explains. The power of special interests and their benefits from the government is real, but only a part of the issue, believe it or not. An example of this is the basic comparison between the establishment of a government enterprise and compare it to a private enterprise. And maybe concentrated benefits lead to the establishment, but however, why on those grounds should the U.S. Post Office, for example, still operate in a less efficient manner than UPS? And Lord knows how terrible it is to go to the DMV. So, what does he mean? It is important to understand, aside from the special interests, it is specifically the difference between the self-interests of individuals in the private sector versus the self-interests of individuals in the public sector. I got no qualm or issues with them in the public sector unless they're being deliberately deceitful. But they're both humans, private or public. They're both humans with self-interest. This is human nature. But maybe the hypothesis, the theory with a lot of research and data and analysis from Mr. Friedman, the legend, maybe the incentive of profit is stronger than the, than the incentive of public service. I intend to create more episodes zooming in deeper on Mr. Friedman's logic, and specifically in his free-to-choose television series. It is really a phenomenal series. I highly recommend it, but... In these episodes, I think there's like eight. He goes really deeper into topics that he's a full-blown expert in, like inflation, uh, government policy, welfare, statism, and how the free market protects consumers, protects workers. And he goes really deep into exposing the true causes of the Great Depression and other financial uh, events that really took a turn for the worse in our time. And so it's all kind of revolved around the difference and efficiency between private and public sectors. So I do intend to make more episodes because it is a ton. Slight sidestep. I'm going to jump into the famous English philosopher, and he is considered one of the founders of modern political philosophy, Thomas Hobbes. And he had a theory and the tenets of this theory and his natural philosophy 
surrounded and expanded upon the belief that human beings down to their very, very core, which we just stated, are selfish creatures with self-interest. This is where we agree. But he goes to a whole other, a whole different extent and thinks that this is the, that the only true and correct form of government because of these self-interests was an absolute monarchy. That one sole ruler, czar feudalistic society. This is where we differ. And this uh, philosophy and theory from Thomas Hobbes was blatantly and poetically, I might add, um, this was argued in his 1651 book, Leviathan, a very popular book. And I must say, it is one of the toughest damn reads that I've ever stumbled upon. But it was definitely one of the most interesting. And it is a personal challenge. And I highly recommend it just to get a little bit more insight uh, moving forward here. But it is no mystery that myself and, of course, Milton Friedman were pro-free societies and markets for a myriad of reasons. And it's also important to note for the audience, especially those to the left, that our founding fathers are also on this team of free societies and markets, not absolute monarchies, right? The Constitution protects itself and us from tyranny. And we fought against it back in that time. And we see ourselves in a similar fight today, not just in our country, but all over the world. And this is why I want to really get into history and help people learn to the best of their abilities while I'm on my mission myself to learn even more and more. It really helps and plays a prominent role in what I learn and read and discover today to try and connect the dots. Um, moving back to the Leviathan thing, why I brought it up, the quote from Abraham Lincoln, of the people by the people and for the people has now turned into of the people by the bureaucrats for the bureaucrats. And this includes elected representatives. And Milton Freeman, again, with an outlandish number of classic on-point quotes, his quote in this book that we'll be diving into today, at the moment, term limits appear to be the reform that promises to be the most effective in curbing Leviathan, the Thomas, Thob, the Thomas Hobbes theory. End quote. And this is true. This is true. If we are giving more and more power to the government and these people are just in office for so long that they're starting to grow roots in there, like Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, and Nancy Martini Pelosi, these are just some prime examples of people that are just in there for far too long. And his argument is for the term limits and to take the power away from government and let the free market flourish. So as I discussed in other episodes with Jeff Nichols, one big solution in our dampening polarization that we see today is education, discourse, learning both sides of the argument and Really, when I mean by education, it's defining and understanding terms, principles, ideology. And I think the miscommunication is a big reason why we see that today. And this is a big reason why I like going into his historical figures such as Mr. Friedman and why they are in the position and argue for the position 
that they are in or that they were in. So I hope my theory is accurate and I hope that this episode can bridge that gap. So without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Milton Friedman and I am going to do my best to highlight some of his major issues with government meddling and specific examples pulled from his book, um, Why Government is the Problem. And so who is Milton Friedman specifically? He is an American economist, statistician, author, and speaker, received the 1976 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, and was a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and too many accolades to riddle off um, years of teaching from University of Chicago in Illinois. That's where he's from. And uh, he was one of the most influential economists and intellectuals of our time. I figure I open some books and read what he has to say and what he thought. (laughs) He has played a staggering role in my life the past couple of years in just trying to understand economics and politics, etc. And I'm sure millions can vouch the same. He wrote extensively on many topics, many, many topics, but his prime, prime emphasizing points are just preserving and extending individual freedom in our society. And he supports this just by basically arguing and pointing to the facts against government intervention. So call me crazy. This is someone who seems like he knows his shit. So no matter which way you swing on the pendulum, I think you should tune in. And maybe dig a little bit deeper to truly understand where he was coming from and why. So you can formulate your own beliefs as accurate as possible. So let's get into his book, Why Government is the Problem. He wrote this in 1993. Um, He explores some of our most popular and serious social problems in America today. It might sound familiar, but it is true. These problems have a pattern. And unfortunately... They tend to arise when we refer back to my spectrum, when we turn that dial further and further to the left, more government poking their nose in our sectors, in our society. And this is not only here in the U.S., but all over the world. Check history. Moving forward. So the problems he addresses in this book, um, item, uh, uh, these items include, or these topics include, a deteriorating educational system, an increase in lawlessness and crime, homelessness in greater proportions, the diminishing of family values, the high cost of housing and the destruction of housing, our financial system, medical system, and he even gets briefly into highway congestion, airports, and other miscellaneous topics. Uh, basically, anywhere and everywhere you look, I did the minimum wage episode. That's just another example Um, But these are specifically in the book that we're going to briefly go over today, do the time's sake, and I'm only going to touch base on three of them, which is a deteriorating educational system, high costs of housing and destruction of housing, and our financial system. And trust me, each of these can definitely uh, reach two to three hours of information, quotes, and education in a whole episode, if not two or three of those, (laughs) but I'm going to do my best to consolidate. But the main point is each of these have the same thing in common. They're problems. They're problems that the government intervened. 
There are problems that the government didn't solve, but even more intriguing, the government exacerbated these problems. So let's start with number one, a deteriorating educational system. Did you know that our public education system is one of the largest socialist programs we have today? And it's been growing since the 1930s moving forward. And it's one of the largest. And we have to keep in mind when he he made this statement back in 1993 and repeated himself all the way into the 21st century when he passed away in 2006. The public school system is a joke on all fronts, and he wants to come in clear that the term, quote-unquote, education, uh, you know, when he refers to the total government spending on, quote-unquote, schooling, as opposed to education, because not all schooling is education, and not all education is schooling. But the total government spending on schooling comes close to the total government spending on our defense So think about that. And I took a gander just to 2019, our public school spending in our nation, $752.3 billion with a B. Think about that. That is a lot of dough. And that is on approximately 48 million children in the public schools. And it's about 5% increase from the previous year. And it's the most per pupil in more than a decade. So Milton, quote, the amount spent per pupil in the past 30 years, so prior to 1993, has tripled in real terms after allowing for inflation. Inflation, And he points out, although input has tripled, output has rapidly been going down, end quote. So from 1979 to 80, to 1992-93, the total real expenditures for public education increased by 40%. This is $254.4 billion, with a B. As of today, we are ranked 14th in the world in the percentage of 25 to 34-year-olds with higher education. And for upper secondary education, we are one of the lowest among the 37 countries in the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And these are typically democratic free market economies to an extent that discuss and develop economic and social policies. We are one of the lowest. And this is on all fronts when it comes to SATs, math, science, like everything is uh, dramatically going down, but we're spending so much money and putting so much more into it. The input is completely outweighing the output, and this is especially true in inner cities, where he's from in Chicago, where where he's investigated in New York. This is very true in California, Baltimore. It's all Democrat cities. Why Democrats? It's because they push these left-wing policies, these government-meddling policies. So, instead of the government spending and poking their nose in an education system, 
that is not working out. Milton, as a solution, wants to promote school vouchers and denationalizing education, allowing a wide range of schools to be available for parents to choose. Now, this really blew my mind when I first discovered this. When we talk education, there's the pro-public school education side, and then there's the pro-choice side. And left-wing progressives always have the loudest rhetoric that they care about the educational system, but they don't give parents the choice to put their kid in a different school district. Like they're locked in that district based on where they live. They don't have the choice to go elsewhere to receive a better education. This is crazy. And there's so many other negative consequences aside from a bad, inadequate education. That can that is definitely likely to ensue in these t- um, bad neighborhoods. And so this is why Milton was a strong believer in school choice. Vouchers. He promoted merit pay for teachers. Some type of accountability. And this is why we tie in that private sector versus public. The private creates more competition and accountability. And this is where all of these beliefs that Milton believes um, is the solution in decentralizing the educational system. And this problem has been growing for years, and it just blows my mind that people do not think that parents can make the best decision for their kid. My son, the doctor syndrome, right? They want their son to be better than them. And it's just, this one just absolutely boggles my mind. But moving forward, number two. High housing costs and the destruction of housing. Milton leads with an example of the North Bronx. And though I have not been to the North Bronx, um, he claims you could find these patterns in pretty much any in pretty much any city where the idea and implementation of rent control by the government exists. And here I do have an anecdotal case, which is San Francisco. And you can see this across the country in many other cities. L.A., Chicago, a lot in California, New York, same song and dance. And he makes the comparison of the North Bronx to a shelled area in Yugoslavia, vacant and desecrated. Rent control is price control. Very similar to my minimum wage argument in a previous episode. When there is price control, there are shortages, period. And this is a perfect way to destroy a neighborhood. Again, do more harm than good. It cripples individuals from making intelligent economic decisions. And the more the government meddles, the more it impacts the free market. Again. And it's the same self-interest, but again, a less efficient manner. And if this is unclear, I again refer you to my Walter Williams minimum wage episode. Uh, for supply and demand, it could really clear things up tenfold, but we're going to keep getting into it. I move forward. Okay, so when prices get set lower, more people tend to want to rent. Makes sense. But we have to think about the landowners. The landowners have to adjust when the government forces them 
to lower the price. They have to adjust. And how do they do this? By having fewer available units, just like minimum wage. You're going to force them to pay them more. Well, they're going to have less of uh, less employees, less jobs available. The Thomas Sowell quote, the minimum wage is actually zero. But voila, this phenomenon causes a housing shortage. And this is just a short run example, but it also affects the long run. Developers will be less likely to develop, whether it's vacant land or purchasing rundown buildings and improving them. They're less likely to do it in rent-controlled areas, and that makes sense, right? Highly regulated areas with uh, units that can only be rented at a certain rate, they're not going to make a profit. This weighs in when they do their sophisticated analysis and punch in the numbers and deal with the construction and get a total net profit. It, it messes with it. So overall, the rent control pushes investors elsewhere. So what does this do? It just leaves the land vacant or the building there decrepit, right? And it just lingers, creating even more so if a neighborhood is decimated already, it just keeps it there. And then the potential for economic growth is non-existent. And the neighborhood just it spreads and spreads and gets into the city. And so, again, this is just another example of making a problem worse, dampening the supply of new housing and reducing the supply of old housing. So not only that, that there's fewer available, but the quality of the remaining units suffers. So the landlords need to cut corners in, in order to maintain a profit upkeep of the property or properties becomes much more expensive. So they're less likely to do repairs, to switch out washing machines and dryers, to paint, renovate, to uh, paint over the graffiti on the side of the building because it really does incur a cost on them and they have to keep that minimal to make a profit. And so uh, contrary to rhetoric, rent control doesn't eliminate slumlords, it creates them. Another book I urge you to read by Milton Friedman, Rent Control, Myths and Realities, where they analyze rent control and present analytical and statistical evidence of how inefficient rent control is in six different countries. On top of all that, other government measures that increase housing is building regulations and zoning laws. And then on top of that, it just increases homelessness as well. And so you increase homelessness and then it also breeds lawlessness and crime, which he expands upon tenfold as well. But it's just a cascade of issues that really don't need to exist all in you know, the hopes and intentions, right, of improving. And it's just all from the government. And it's true. So lastly, the financial system. And it's funny, is, is there any doubt that the weakness of our current financial system owes much to Washington and the Federal Reserve? I mean, ask yourself that question. 
I encourage people to watch on YouTube a gentleman. His name is Peter Schiff. He goes on to Occupy Wall Street. This was during that 08 crisis time. And this is a good example. And it's just a great display of his financial savviness going into the lion's den, so to speak. And he, tr- he has a lot of discourse with those protesters there occupying after the OA crisis. And he makes the argument that, yeah, they have every right to be outraged and protest. But he simply just says, you're protesting in the wrong location. You should be out protesting on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C. Blaming Wall Street is like blaming the alcoholics for going to the bar and getting blasted. What is much more effective and actually relevant is to hold accountable the bartenders supplying the booze. So his argument, along with Milton Friedman in regards to the financial system, is give the government less power and there will be less corruption. And them printing money and bailing out these banks is a prime example. So they're both promoters of just minimizing and shrinking government. And highlighting once again that government intervention exacerbates the problem because now these banks are more likely to do riskier loans and be more reckless because they know they have a safety net of the government that they're commingling with, crony capitalism. And it sucks because the mainstream narrative, they they put all of their guns and their targets set upon the free market which didn't cause it. So just to wrap that up, I encourage you to tune in to his podcast and read some of his books. Again, his name is Peter Schiff, very financially literate and promotes great education. And him himself also thinks that we're kicking this can down the road when it comes to our trillions in debt and our constant um, you know, printing of money Uh, It's just a matter of time on when the real recession and or depression comes about. We don't know when, but I'll tell you this much. 2020 was an artificial one. I don't think that was the real one. That's I'm not a doomsday guy, so to speak, but something doesn't seem right. But moving forward along those same lines, um, Milton Freeman also made the claim and really, really promoted his whole life that the Great Depression also was due to government and not the free enterprise, along with a bunch of other financial recessions. And we can get into the specifics in another episode with that. But a good book I encourage you to purchase is The Great Contraction, 1929 to 1933. He co-authored this book with Anna Jacobson Schwartz, um, and also a good book that he wrote uh, in 1963, a monetary history of the U of the United States, 1867 to 1960. And now this is his wheelhouse. This is what Milton Freeman is known for monetary policy, inflation, economics. And he argues that the money supply profoundly influenced by the government translates to our economy. And they were not and have not been utilizing and pushing sound monetary policy. And even worse, when it comes to the media and narrative, again, they direct all the negative financial consequences to the free market, capitalism. 
you know, these unintended adverse effects actually caused the Great Depression. So this is a these are the type of things I discovered that really just opened my mind quite a bit and got me interested in digging deeper and learning more about the truth. And so he also makes one last little reference in this book in his miscellaneous section for government intervention referring to economic policies that were botched called the reverse Reaganomics that the Bush administration practiced. And he believes this led and contributed to the 1990-1991 recession. And so these are plenty of examples where, again, the government poking its nose in a sector and just causes way more harm than good. And we can definitely expand upon that tenfold in another episode, in particular, that Great Depression example. Um, but yeah, the, the financial system is a very, very big one for Milton Friedman. So those are the three examples that I got for you today. And now as I wrap, wrap it up and wrap back around to Milton's quote about Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan, the solution, the term limit legislation. And this was something he pointed to as the cure for this government meddling that would at least give Congress less power, right? Decentralize the self-interests of the public sector and allow the self-interests of the private sector to flourish. You know, our country has a great history and heritage, contrary to what the left promotes today. But since the beginning of our republic, every generation has been better schooled and elevated into higher standards of living and all of those topics that I mentioned earlier. Um, but the 20th century has really taken a different turn. And this was Milton back in 1993. He is fearful of the generations moving forward. I don't blame him. I really wonder what he would say today. But this is why I wanted to discuss these examples. Um, and honestly, they all only scratch the surface. I really love what I do and in regards to learning and digging deeper into these prominent figures and events in our history and trying to connect them to the events today, if there's any relation. And so if I did anything today, hopefully you can do a bit more research and learn about Milton Friedman. I know I sprinkled some of his logic and reasoning today, but his main proponent, again, is just pro-free market and really against the unfortunate consequences of government meddling and intervention. And although in rhetoric and theory it may seem like a proper move, history and facts show otherwise. So from a bystander's point of view, fence-sitters, such as myself back in 2020, I have a tough time turning that dial further and further to the left, especially when brilliant minds, noble, brilliant minds such as Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize-winning economists, argue to the contrary. So please, like, share, subscribe, I'm on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Rumble, all that shit. 
And thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone. And I look forward to you tuning in next time. Farewell. Thank you.